0: Thank you for downloading this resource from the International Christian Medical and Dental Association. To find out more, go to www.icmda.net slash resources. The views expressed in this resource do not necessarily reflect those of ICMDA. And so our text this morning may be remarkably appropriate. It goes like this. In Hebrews 11 and verse 22 it says... By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. One thing that advancing age causes to happen is that we become aware of bones that we never knew were there. (laughs) And we invite the medics to try and help us with the aches and pains in our bones. But, of course, Joseph was not thinking of that. Joseph was thinking, like all those great pioneers of faith, that this world is transitory, that we're not built for here, that there is an eternal world to come. And as the Hebrews' epistle gives us the long list of heroes of faith, including Joseph. It is telling us that they bore witness to the fact that there is an eternal world. And the secret of Joseph's life was that although he lived in this world, he didn't live for it. He lived for the eternal world. And I want us to be aware of that as we think of the span of the book of Genesis. Forty years ago today, a sermon was preached at our wedding. And our friend Stan Ford quoted these words, In the beginning, God. His words were prophetic in many ways of what was to come. He talked about marriage as a beginning, a beginning of beginnings, because life would throw up many beginnings, and he reminded us, and we've never forgotten it, that in every beginning, God, whether it's a new relationship, a new job, a new geographical move, In the beginning, God, little did he know of how much I would be involved in trying with God's help to defend belief that there is a beginning and that God is behind it. But at the practical level, those verses, we've reminded ourselves of them many times. And they tell us what Genesis is all about, don't they? That's what Joseph's life was about, in the beginning, God. And we've got to that point in the story where Joseph has now been put in prison because of false evidence. That is a topic in itself because we are living in an age where false witness is one of the things from which some people in this room are suffering when it comes to what is said about them by their medical colleagues. And our Lord told us that a time would come when people would say all kinds of things about us falsely. And false evidence was brought to bring pain to Jacob's heart, and false evidence was brought to bring pain to Joseph's heart. And the whole process of suffering in this story is caused by false evidence. Take courage if you're suffering under it this morning. Because our Lord told us it was the path that some of us could expect to have to follow. And now he's in prison and with sensitivity, rather than being consumed by his own troubles, he recognizes that There's something wrong with these two men and he interprets their dreams and one of them is going to be restored to his position the other is going to be executed. He tells them the truth straight, whichever truth it is in each case. And after he's finished talking, he just quietly slips in a little phrase to the uh, butler who was going to get his job back. And he says to him, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me in the pit. And hope began to grow in Joseph's breast. Surely this man would remember him. And I can imagine him sitting in the prison, waiting for the knock on the door that would signify release. Because, of course, the chief butler played a very important role to keep the king from being poisoned. And he had access to the emperor. And after a couple of days, nothing happened. Then a week went by, and then the months, and nothing happened. How long, O Lord? How long? It's a cry of many human hearts, isn't it? Haven't you cried it? How long? Two years went by. And Pharaoh had a dream. Where did the dream come from? Well, of course, we know it came from God. So God could have given Pharaoh the dream lots earlier, couldn't he? But he didn't. Now here we see some of the mystery of God's workings. The man could have remembered earlier, but he didn't. And so in a very real sense, the fact That Joseph had to wait was in the hands of God. Do you find waiting easy? I don't. There's a verse in Isaiah which says, He who believes shall not be in a hurry. Joseph's faith, as the psalm tells us, was tested. It was put under enormous pressure. But that waiting time must have been the greatest pressure of all. Because he knew that the butler knew that he was innocent and could help him. Often we have to wait longer than we think, don't we? But just imagine if the butler had remembered before Pharaoh dreamed. Joseph would have been allowed out. Of course he would. He was a trivial prisoner. A word to Pharaoh and he had been off the hook and out. But he wouldn't have been running the nation. God had bigger things in view for this young man and so the waiting. Until Pharaoh had a dream and couldn't interpret it. And then, of course, the chief butler remembered and felt a bit guilty but was courageous enough to tell Pharaoh. And they brought Joseph very quickly out of the prison and he shaved himself. Another little detail. Egyptians didn't like beards, I'm afraid, gentlemen. <laughs> so he shaved himself in order to be acceptable. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard that you, uh, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered, It is not in me. God. Oh, I'd love to have been there, wouldn't you? To see this young Hebrew standing in front of a Pharaoh. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh the answer. To stand for God. Straight out of a prison. It's magnificent, isn't it? How long are you going to keep your head down? Are you going to keep it down so long that you can't lift it? Are you going to start witnessing when you get that top consultancy, but not before in case the colleagues pressurize you? I'm going to talk very straight, ladies and gentlemen. I sense in my own world and in the professional world a creeping paralysis of shame. And it's shame of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we make every excuse we can possibly make not to raise our voice for Jesus in our society. Now, I don't mean that we should be sending verses by email to our colleagues every morning. Nor leaving little notes. We have to be sensitive. But there's a profound difference in the attitude of heart that's constantly looking for opportunities to witness. And the attitude of heart that's frightened stiff in case we'd lose that plumb position. No, this is real stuff. And we need to face it. Joseph had been trained. His confidence in God hadn't been shaken by those years in prison. And when he got the opportunity, he stood magnificently in our world and saved it. And suggested to Pharaoh all kinds of economic things. And Pharaoh had the sense to see that the genius he needed was standing in front of him. So he gave him charge of the whole nation and did something that no Egyptian Pharaoh ever did before or since. He made Joseph ride in the second chariot. The ancient historians point out that the Pharaohs were so high above the rest of the nation that they would allow no one to ride in any chariot when they were on parade. This is the exception. And Joseph takes over command of the world. It's what humans were meant to do, ladies and gentlemen. It's what Adam missed. And now we begin to see the big scale of what God can do with a man that trusts him and has got the courage to acknowledge him. If you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you, said Christ. And we need to be looking for every possible opportunity to acknowledge him. But now that Joseph's got his power, what's he going to do with it? Well, he's going to save the nation by instituting economic reforms and store cities and all kinds of things. But there's a whole family history not to be forgotten, isn't there? And so the story starts in 42. When the famine began to bite that had been predicted in the dream of Pharaoh, it began to bite so severely it reached up into the northern country where Jacob still was, and he heard that there was grain for sale. He didn't know his son was behind it. There's a poignancy about this story because it's full of dreams and it's full of the absence of dreams. God could have given Jacob a dream that his son was still alive, but he didn't. Joseph could have sent messages up from Egypt, but he didn't. The silence of this story is fascinating. Now let's watch what Joseph's going to do. I've heard there's grain in Egypt, said Jacob, go and buy. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain But Jacob didn't send Benjamin. He'd lost Joseph, of course, who was Benjamin's brother of the same mother. He feared the harm might happen to him. So ten of them came down, and Joseph was a hands-on administrator. He was standing watching the distribution of the grain, and one day, to his staggering amazement, he watched ten men bow themselves to the ground in front of him. And he recognized them. What a moment in history. To see the men that had sold him down the river. What was he going to do with them? And now comes one of the most poignant and deep stories I know of. It is an anatomy of repentance and forgiveness, ladies and gentlemen. Joseph is now going to use his enormous power to do what God does with his goodness, and that is to lead men and women to repentance. There are two conditions for the gospel, not just one, you know. Repent and believe. And I'm going to embark on a study which some of you might find slightly controversial. Because it seems to me there is some confusion these days about the nature of forgiveness. And a person who's had her son shot before her eyes by the IRA has a microphone pushed in front of her face and says, Do you forgive them? We need to forget, we need to remember, ladies and gentlemen, that God forgives. Upon repentance. And the word repentance is being left out of our vocabularies. Because people have confused that inner attitude of willingness to forgive with real forgiveness that's complete. Forgiveness is two levels, of course. There's an inner letting it go, but there's a public letting it go and God doesn't let it go until we repent, does he? And sometimes I fear people demand standards of others and give them endless pain by demanding they forgive where there is no repentance and by therefore raising a standard that's higher than God. But we shall see it in this story as we go along. But let's recall That the gospel is repentance and forgiveness being preached from Jerusalem. So what's Joseph going to do? Well, he first speaks roughly to them. Where do you come from? From the land of Canaan. He recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dream. And he said, you're spies. They said, no, my Lord. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Ah. Ah. Now this is it. This is what's going to be tested. We are honest men. The rest of the story is going to put this under test. He says, no, you're spies. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father. And suddenly Joseph knows two things, that his dad's alive and Benjamin's alive. Just imagine it. Of course, he didn't know. he knows his beloved brother still alive, with all the memories of his mum. And his dad, who loved him, is still alive. And one is no more. We are honest men. You're spies. I'm going to test you by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your younger brother come. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. Oh, this is subtle, isn't it? I don't feel I've got nearly to the bottom of it, but I'm going to share with you what I think it's all about. So Joseph put them together in custody for three days and let them sweat it out. Thinking that they were all going to be captives. He was, of course, putting them through a vaguely similar experience, the one that they had put him through. And then after three days, he he says, if you are honest men, you notice he's caught the phrase, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go. So he's made it much easier. And then they said to one another, the truth, we're guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of our soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. That is why the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for blood. And now Joseph Joseph knows something else. He knows that Reuben tried to save him. They didn't know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned from them and wept. Oh, now watch this. This is a man with unlimited power in terms of any world level. He's got them in his hands. But he weeps. What does that tell you? He wants to forgive them. That's the first level. He wants to tell them who he is. This is not a man harboring grudges and all the rest of it. But he can't. Why not? Because they need to repent. There'll never be real healing until they repent. He's worked it out in his own heart. And that's where some of the contemporary confusion comes. And failing to distinguish those two things. But they're distinguished so clearly in this story, it can form a paradigm to help us analyze things. Now, just because you may be thinking it, so often people quote, in this context, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But please never quote that to people who do know what they're doing, ladies and gentlemen. A man who abuses a child knows what he's doing. These brothers knew exactly what they were doing. The soldiers that crucified Jesus didn't know what they were doing. They were just crucifying a criminal. They didn't realize that he was the Son of God. And when they came to realize it, they would have remembered his prayer that there was hope for them. These men did know. And that's why they had to be brought to real repentance before they could be forgiven. Although the man standing in front of them wanted to forgive them because he'd done so in his heart already. So now he knows these things and he weeps. Powerful men don't weep, do they? When was the last time you wept? And here we see the sensitivity of a true attitude to power. Oh the more power people get the further they are away from sensitivity to other people's feelings this is the reverse this is a man who understood who deeply felt who was not rem- who was not rendered emotionally neutral by his power do remember it it's so easy, isn't it, when you get power to become insensitive. And when you're a top consultant, don't forget those nurses who slave their lives out at a salary far less than your own. Don't forget those other health care workers who clean the hospital wards. They're made in the image of God just as much as you are if you hold the chair. Don't let your power make you an insensitive man or woman. Be someone that even those people can come to and open their hearts and feel the prof will understand. How easily power ruins us, ladies and gentlemen. And makes us monsters. And we don't see it. Sadly even Christians who get such an idea of their own importance that they lord it over everybody. It is such a dangerous thing to be an expert, to know things that other people know because it feeds my little arrogance in here. Watch Joseph as he weeps with all the power in his hands, and he weep more than once before this story's over. So he took Simeon from them, who was the next in line, and bound him. And then he filled their sacks with grain and put the money back, and off they went. And they opened their sacks, and they were shaken, of course, absolutely shaken. What does this mean? So they arrive with Jacob and tell Jacob... And they say in verse 30, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies. But we said, We're honest men. Here comes the third time. I hope you've noticed it by now. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And they go through it again. And when their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob said, You have bereaved me of my children. He'd begun to suspect, of course. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. Now you take Benjamin. You see, the family is beginning to disintegrate. I mentioned this in the first talk. This is Jacob losing his family member by member. Except that what he doesn't know is that by losing them he's going to gain them. And then Reuben says, Kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. What a silly suggestion. That would have been even less family members, wouldn't it? (laughs) Typical Reuben, the instability of making a wild idea. We do it sometimes, don't we? We laugh easily at old Reuben. But sometimes our notions for solving deep problems are wild in the extreme. And would lead to more damage. And Jacob puts his foot down and says, he will not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. Ah, but the famine got worse. And stomachs start to talk to minds. And Jacob says, go and buy us a little food. And now Judah comes along and says, you'll not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel, that is Jacob, said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Why couldn't you be a little bit more economical with the truth? Here it goes again. Poor old Jacob. True to form, but that's another story. But, says Judah, the man questioned us carefully and said, Had you got another brother? And Judah now steps forward and says, Send the boy with me. That we may live and not die. Both we and you and our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. All oh, things are moving in the heart of Judah. He sold Joseph down the river. But now he's moving to repentance. Because now he's prepared to be a pledge. I'm going to take it on myself to be responsible. Should have been for Joseph. But Joseph's gone. So now it's Joseph's brother. And now the whole story is going to revolve on attitude to Benjamin. Because Joseph isn't there. It's about attitude to Joseph. But the pressure is brilliantly organized by Joseph to bring their attitude to Benjamin to the fore. So uh Jacob says, okay. And he says, take some fruit and some nuts and carry them down to the man, a little honey, a little gum. Oh, dear me. (laughs) Just imagine taking a few nuts down to the chap who was running the whole of Egypt. (laughs) As if that could do anything. Oh, Jacob tried to buy his way in again, you know. It's so natural, isn't it? It's so human. Yes, and Benjamin went down and doubled the money. That was a bit hard for Jacob, but nevertheless he did it. And they arrived again. And Joseph now sees Benjamin, his brother, standing in front of him. He says, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for there to dine with me at noon. And they were afraid, and they said it's because of the money. So they had a discussion with the servant, and that made it even worse. We had your money, he said. So Joseph comes to dinner, and they bow to the ground. The sheaves are bowing, and there's one extra sheaf. Benjamin's there. Is your father well? Yes, he's well. He's still alive. They bowed again. And now he sees Benjamin. Is this your youngest brother? I said Joseph. Then he says God be gracious to you my son. And he can't hold it anymore. With all his power. He's desperate. To reveal himself. But he can't. Because he doesn't yet know. If these men have repented. So he had to rush out. Because his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he wept. And then he washed his feet, and he said, serve the food. And there they were, sitting round a table in order of age. Talk about intelligent design. It shook them. You can work out what the probability is of getting the orders right at random, because they all looked the same, of course. With beards, they were older men. And that little bit of design on Joseph's part disturbed them even more. And then, off they went. But Joseph now puts his cup in Benjamin's sack. And after they'd gone a little bit out, Joseph sends his servant and he gets the men and says, Look, why have you behaved like this? You've stolen my master's cup special cup so they go through and we know the story well and they find the cup in benjamin's sack they tear their clothes and they loaded their donkey and they went back to the city they've just been told by the servant that joseph had said the others are free to go they have now a choice. They're back at the same choice as they faced years before, aren't they? Do we leave Benjamin as we left Joseph? And they decide to go. So now they arrive back. And Judah says, as a spokesman, what did we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt. And he said, We, and also the one in whose hand the cup has been found, are guilty. But he said, no, 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 only the man in whom the cup was found. And Judah now steps forward. Oh, listen to this. Oh, my Lord, he says. Panic driving the man. Please, please listen to me. You asked us, have you a father, and we told you. The father, an old man, a young brother, the child of his old age, his brother is dead. And you said, bring him down to me that I may see him. And we said, the boy cannot leave his father because if he leaves, he should die. And then you said, unless your younger brother comes, you won't see my face again. And he describes how they came down the second time. Now he says to Joseph, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy isn't with us, Even then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy isn't with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down his gray hairs of your father. Your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant, said Judah, that is himself, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father. If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, please... Oh, this is the beginnings of repentance, folks. Please, he says to Joseph, let me stay instead of the boy. And let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy isn't with me? I fear to see the evil. That would happen to my father. He hadn't feared to see the evil that would happen to his father when he sold Joseph. But now he's repenting. He's changing his mind. That's what repentance is metanoia. What's the issue? The issue is, ladies and gentlemen, what the father thinks of the son. What Jacob thought of Benjamin. But you'd be a very blind person if you couldn't see the magnificent backdrop to this. It's telling you the biggest story in the universe. Have you grasped what the Son means to the Father? Because if you have, it will work repentance. Not simply initial repentance, but the repentance of all those things that come churning into our minds in moments like this for which we need God's forgiveness. Oh, look at the son and Judah says, I'm prepared to substitute myself for him. Oh, how many lines... Spin out of this like rays of a complex sun. Judah, the one who's the progenitor of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who took the place of you and of me. There was Judah standing, offering to be taken, and Joseph sees that repentance is complete and he could not control himself anymore. And he sends everybody out. And he says, I'm Joseph, man. I'm Joseph. The man who held all the power was a brother. The poignant moment in history, isn't it? It's very moving and I'm not ashamed to be moved by it. Because if I'm moved by this story that happened about four millennia ago, how can I not be moved by the cross of Christ? There's much more to be said, but I'm not going to say it. I'm simply going to stop with two things. Forty years ago at my wedding, there was a young man who turned out to be one of this generation's towering evangelists and Bible teachers. His name is known to some of you at least. It's Nigel Lee. He and I many years ago made an agreement that whoever died first, the other, would preach his funeral sermon. And when he got terminal cancer he turned to me and said, I never thought it would be this way round, John. And I could see the reasons for that. And I said to him, Nigel, what will I tell them? What will I tell them? And he said without hesitation, John, I know what you're going to tell them. Tell them, he said, to do what we did when we were students in Cambridge All those years ago. To take God's word. And to get into it not to prepare sermons. Oh what a sad pity it is when people only turn to scripture to prepare talks for other people. That's the way to spiritual poverty folks. Tell them he said. To get into God's word and wait on God until they begin to see his face and then he said they'll have something to say so I'm telling you that's the first point the final point is this joseph made mention concerning his bones he was a man who saw the invisible He saw the eternal world, and it controlled his life in this world. And my final point to you is this. Do you know what I think? I think that when heaven dawns on my consciousness for the first time, the first thought that will come into my mind will be this if I had known what this was going to be like, I would have invested far more in it. Let's be silent for a few minutes. As you respond to God,